Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. And Don, I think you asked uh, an interesting question at the outset, and for our next speaker, that actually might be an even better question uh, in terms of cyber, because we have uh, the great pleasure of introducing Professor Paul Davis as our next speaker. Paul has experience in both strategic and tactical uh, military and political analysis that spanned from the Cold War to the current upheavals in the Middle East. He began as a Soviet analyst uh, assessing tactical capabilities as well as senior political issues that arose within the Politburo. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, he began focusing his analysis on North Korea, assessing its new tactics and techniques, including its cyber operations. Um, later, he moved to the Middle East and transitioned his focus to analysis of Iran, Syria, and Iraq, three very stable and peaceful countries. Um, <laughs> serving in the U.S. Army uh, from 2003 to 2005, Professor Davis served as lead intelligence an analyst with the DIA's Iraq Division, where he was, was responsible for military and political intelligence production in support of Iraqi freedom. Uh, Paul earned his uh, MA from Keene College in New Jersey, and his, I'm sorry, his BA from Keene College in New Jersey, and his MA from American Military University. He is the founder and president of Janus Think, a consulting organization dedicated to supporting government contractors and, serve, uh, and commercial companies in business development. He also serves as the Vice President of Government Business Development at SecureDAM, where he works as on cybersecurity and cyber intelligence issues. Uh, he is also, as though he's, I don't know how he has the time for this, uh, a Senior Research Fellow at Saran University in Iraq, where he works with the university to explain U.S. government decisions, that's a full-time job on its own, and support research initiatives on relevant issues. Paul, please come up. Good morning. Well, I've heard uh, Kurds and Iraq mentioned a couple times, so I'll say it both. Good morning, and Rosbosch. <laughs> um, and by the way, sir, the, uh, thank you for the cyber question. The check should clear now. <laughs> well, our last speaker um, spoke about resistance movements and the history of them and how they've, they've operated. Extremely, extremely interesting. It's my job today to come up here and scare the hell out of you now about cyber. So today we'll talk about cyber terrorism its uses and possible ways to fight it. To do so, we'll discuss other aspects of cyber. This will include cyber war and cyber crime. The Cyber Intelligence Initiative at IWP is dedicated to educating our students in this new reality of our world. Terrorism itself has different definitions under different conditions. The history of modern terrorism uh, began with the French Revolution and has evolved ever since. The most common causes or roots of terrorism include civilization or culture clash, globalization, religion, and ethnic conflict. More personal uh, or individual-based reasons for terrorism are frustration, deprivation, 
negative identity, narcissistic rage, and or moral disengagement. The Unabomber was a terrorist, but felt justified in killing people for his version of environmental justice. Agencies such as the FBI, Defense, State, realize the need to define terrorism. While each definition is a bit different, they do have constant themes, which involve premeditation, terrorist acts which are motivated by some political or social agenda. Terrorists generally target non-combatants or civilians and are generally subnational or clandestine groups. The Department of Defense's definition of terrorism is the calculated use of unlawful violence or threat of unlawful violence to produce fear intended to coerce or to intimidate governments or societies in the pursuit of goals that are generally political, religious, or ideological. Homeland Security um, itself has a different definition. They have the term terrorism means any active activity that involves an act that is dangerous to human life or potentially destructive of critical infrastructure or key resources and is a violation of criminal laws of the United States or any state or subdivision of the United States. It's used to intimidate or coerce a civilian population to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion. The FBI has a much more concise definition of terrorism. It's the, unused, unused, excuse me, the unlawful use of force or violence against persons or property to intimidate or coerce a government, the civilian population or any segment thereof in furtherance of political or social objectives. This definition is important to remember when we begin to talk about the cyber realm. North, uh, the NATO has a very similar definition to ours, but we try to get it all together in an international setting under an international group called the United Nations. The United Nations definition of terrorism, they don't have one. <laughs> I'm sure that shocks all of you. Now, cyber-terrorism is the convergence of cyberspace and terrorism. It refers to unlawful attacks and threats of attacks against computers, networks, and the information stored therein. When done to intimidate or coerce a government, or its people in furtherance of political or social objectives. As we shall see, it also extends to violence. But now we have terrorism that is not restricted to non-combatants. Put where we are today in context. In late July 1909, Wilbur and Orville Wright arrived in Washington to show off their military flyer. Pictures have survived and showing the people from Washington who streamed across the Potomac to see the show. Even President William Howard Taft got into the act, though the Wright brothers were not about to take the risk of giving him a flight. <laughs> not surprisingly, the military was fascinated by the potential of this wild invention. Generals imagined flying the craft over enemy lines, outflanking an oncoming force, and thus sending the cavalry off to dispense with them. And it wasn't until three years later in 1912 that someone thought of arming one of these observation aircraft with a machine gun. In 1913, there were 14 military aircraft manufactured in the United States. Five years later, with World War I raging, there were 14,000. 
36 years after the Orville's first flight in front of the President Taft, the Enola Gay banked over Hiroshima and changed the face of warfare forever, combining the reach of air power and the destructive force of the world's newest ultimate weapon. Today, civilians fly across the, the, the country and around the world without a second thought. In the cyber world today, we are somewhere around World War I. There were three or four nations with effective cyber forces a decade ago. Now there are more than 30, and it's growing. And terrorism, in many instances, is an extension of war. To fully understand cyber terrorism, we must accept it as an extension of cyber war. And to understand the similarities between kinetic and cyber warfare, to this end, it's essential to understand what constitutes an act of war and what does not. That is particularly difficult to determine in the area of cyber. Cyber is fundamental to all areas of war these days. We can therefore see the need to understand cyber in relations to statecraft and international relations. In the new cyber age, we have new ways of attacking each other. This is all coming to a head now as the country learns about the level of foreign interference in our political and commercial uh, arenas. We might think about the attack on our election system as the cyber version of Pearl Harbor. So we do need to protect ourselves against the covert operations of foreign governments by protecting ourselves against cyber interference, such as planted stories in the news media or on social media. Are planted stories and the use of social media truly a form of terrorism? Let's dissect the FBI definition. The unlawful use of force or violence against persons or property to intimidate or coerce a, a government, the civilian population, or any segment thereof in furtherance of political or social objectives. So yes, it is terrorism. More important is to protect ourselves against more direct attacks. We have been treating cyber attacks as more of a nuisance, like releasing a virus. Much of our cyber funding for the government has been directed at offense. Recently, we have moved to more toward defense. In the future, preventative force, particularly in the form of cyber attacks like Stuxnet, which we'll talk about in a second, may have the broader potential to take the place in statecraft of a classic deterrence and coercive diplomacy. And the U.S. does have some interest in this. Stuxnet is a malicious computer worm, first uncovered in 2010, thought to have been in development since 2005. It targets supervisory control and data acquisition systems and is believed to be responsible for causing substantial damage to the nuclear program of Iran. Although neither country has openly ad admitted responsibility, the worm is widely understood to be a cyber weapon built jointly by the United States and Israel. Operation Olympic Games was a covert and still unacknowledged campaign of sabotage by means of cyber disruption, directed at Iranian nuclear facilities by the United States and likely Israel. It was one of the first known uses of offensive cyber weapons. Started under the administration, of George W. Bush in 2006, Olympic Games was accelerated under President Obama, who heeded Bush's advice to continue cyber attacks on the Iranian nuclear facilities. Why use cyber? 
Bush believed that the strategy was the only way to prevent an Israeli conventional strike on Iranian nuclear forces. Now, according to former DHS Secretary Michael Chertoff, cyber threats have increased exponentially since his time in office under President Bush between 2005 and 2009. In the beginning, most cyber threats were revolved around criminal activities. It has since morphed and are now a battleground for nations with Russia and China conducting espionage and damaging networks. How do they do this? In early February of this year, an unknown hacker or team of hackers remotely accessed the software that manages the water supply in Oldsmar, Florida. They attempted to inject huge amounts of lye into the municipal water supply, which would have poisoned thousands of people. The, that attempted attack was thwarted due to sheer luck. An engineer happened to notice the uh, cursor on his computer screen moving, as seemingly of his own accord, and took action before it was too late. Disaster was narrowly averted. The attack was likely not a random prank. Oldsmar is located just outside of Tampa, where the Super Bowl was being held that week. Because the attack was foiled and nobody was hurt, few people are hurt about it. It was a blip in the news cycle. But the botched Oldsmar attack should have been much more of a wake-up call. It may be a precursor of a cyber 9-11. We all recall the failed attack on the World Trade Center in 1993. They did not, they did not fail on the second attempt. We have seen recent uh, uses of cyber attacks, such as the ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline and the supply chain attack through the solar wind system. And as you may recall, Colonial Pipeline suffered a disruptive ransomware attack in May that caused an emergency in several U.S. states. Following the incident, the firm promptly paid a $5 million ransom to the attackers in cyber currency. The dark side ransomware gang, however, to the attackers. Okay. However, the data recovery still took a lot of time, uh, creating almost nationwide chaos. This attack, uh, this huge attack, consequently jolted up the security agencies, drawing the attackers, the dark side ransomware gang, into the limelight. Eventually, the attackers disappeared quickly after losing access to their, its infrastructure. However, it is now believed the gang has reemerged as black matter ransomware. Although the new threat didn't, uh, through new threat actors don't state anything like that, the similarities um, hint at a possibility of a reband or a spinoff. Upon detecting the ransomware attack, Colonial promptly started counteractive measures involving security experts and law enforcement. Since then, Colonial Pipeline has continued investigating the, the, the matter and now has disclosed the security breach that happened during the incident affected users' data. Of course, this is not the first time there has been a data breach of personal information in December. Uh, excuse me, in December of 18th, 2013, the carefree days of consumerism came to a screeching halt as the news first broke that discount uh, retail giant Target had been hit with an unprecedented data breach. As the story unfolded, it became clear that the, the scale and sophistication of the breach had compromised 13 gigabytes of data containing the names mailing addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, and payment card information 
for up to 70 million people. So how does a data breach in a commercial environment meet the standard of cyberterrorism? Probably doesn't, but it's an indicator. In 2015, OPM announced two separate but related cybersecurity incidents that have impacted the data of federal government employees, contractors, and others. In June 2015, OPM discovered that a huge, that the background investigation uh, records of current, former, and prospective federal employees and contractors had been stolen. OPM and the interagency incident response team have concluded with a high confidence that sensitive information, including the social security numbers of 21.5 million individuals, was stolen from the background investigation database. This includes 19.7 million individuals that applied for a background investigation and 1.8 million non-applicants, primarily spouses or cohabitants of applicants. Some records also included findings from interviews and conducted by background investigators and approximately 5.6 million included fingerprints, username and password that background investigation applicants used to fill out their background investigations. And I hope you're all changing your password on a monthly basis. <laughs> Earlier in 2015, OPM discovered that the personal data of 4.2 million current and former federal government employees uh, had been stolen. This means information such as full name, birth date, home address, and social security numbers were affected. If you underwent a background investigation in 2000 or afterwards, you were very likely involved in this. And hopefully OPM sent you information like they did to me saying, we're going to guarantee five years of, uh, we'll, we'll cover any problem. So in the sixth year, Now, beyond this, there's a ticking time bomb that we've embedded within our daily lives. From our water supply to interconnected thermostats, to Wi-Fi-enabled tea kettles. The so-called Internet of Things, in which objects that used to be fully offline are now connected to the Internet, is a largely unregulated world. And because of that, it would easily become a source of immense tragedy if the government doesn't pay more attention. Cybersecurity consultant Ken Monroe has talked about the extremely lax security around the various Internet of Things devices, from dolls to inter internet connected suitcases. Hacking these devices, he said, is often off the scale easy and requires no technical skill at all. In other words, the devices functionally have zero security. The products have been designed to, to connect to the internet with no serious thought about how to secure that digital traffic. Stories about the vulnerabilities have gained prominence when researchers have warned that hackers could, for example, speak to a child through their internet-connected doll. But the larger threat to security, is argued, is when the centralized systems that manage the internet of things, devices are targeted. Such an attack allows something called aggregation, in which all of the Wi-Fi-enabled tea kettles or all the th smart thermostats from the same company are simultaneously compromised. So a group targets a particularly hot area at a time of peak load and tell all the thermostats pushing your AC across multiple properties to turn off and on at the same time. 
you create spikes in the power grid. Monroe explained, because of the way the power grid work, even a small attack can cause the grid to shut itself off as part of self-protection protocols. In short, your smart thermostat or tea kettle could, if attacked in unison with other models, knock the power out uh, for a large swath of the United States. That means we have inadvertently built weapons all around us that are seemingly harmless. Once connected to the internet could be used to help trigger a widespread blackout that kills people. Is this terrorism or cybercrime or the beginning of a cyber war? After land, sea, air and space, uh, warfare has entered the fifth domain, cyberspace. Today, what comes with war is terrorism. The Defense Department elaborated in 2018 that the department must take action to, in cyberspace during day-to-day -day competition to preserve U.S. military advantages and to defend the U.S. interests. The focus on the states that can pose strategic threats to the U.S. property and personnel. Primarily, what DOD is looking at is China and Russia and to appoint Iran and North Korea. Again, to differentiate, cyber-terrorism is the convergence of cyberspace and terrorism, and adding to that cyber war. Cyber capabilities have unique properties. Experience with them in conflict thus far has been limited. Consequently, it is difficult to make confident judgments about their effects and escalatory uh, potential. Cyber technologies and techniques in some respects originated in the intelligence profession. Stuxnet was the first weapon built by the intelligence community, not at the instigation of a military group. Cyber technologies in some respects are, okay, examining cyberspace operations in the light of history and practice of technology helps illuminate both topics. For the most part, we will look at these threats that come from hostile nation states. National cyber warfare programs provide emerging cyber threat ranging from propaganda, website defacement, espionage, disruption of the key infrastructure to, to loss of life. Government-sponsored programs are increasingly sophisticated and pose advanced threats. One such nation state is Russia. Cyber operations as attributed to Moscow are not conducted in a strategic vacuum. They are enabled and shaped by broader geopolitical considerations and the institution, institutional culture of Russian military, intelligence, and political leadership. Russia views cyber very differently than its Western counterparts. From the way Russian theorists define cyber war to how the Kremlin employs its cyber capabilities. Russian officials are convinced that Moscow is locked in an ongoing existential struggle with internal and external forces that are seeking to challenge its security in the information realm. This is not totally unique. Russia feels that about everything. Offensive cyber is playing a greater role in conventional Russian military operations. Although the Russian military has been slow to embrace cyber for both structural and doctrinal reasons, the Kremlin has signaled that it needs to bolster the offense 
as well as the defensive cyber capabilities of its armed forces. During operations in Georgia and Ukraine, Russia employed cyber as a conventional force enabler. Cyber war by Russia includes denial of service attacks, hacker attacks, dissemination of disinformation, and propaganda. Participation of state-sponsored teams in political blogs is part of this. The internet surveillance, persecution of cyber dissidents, and other activities, active measures. Some of these activities are coordinated by the Russian Signals Intelligence, which is part of the FSB and formerly part of the 16th KGB department. Russia has been, seized, has been perceived as the main person of interest in the 2016 election interference, the solar winds attack, and the ransomware attack on the colonial pipeline. Now, other than that, as the lights went out in western Ukraine the day before Christmas Eve 2015, the Department of Homeland Security uh, detected that something more nefarious than a winter storm or blown up sus substation had triggered the sudden darkness across a remote corner of the embattled former uh, Soviet Republic. The event had all the markings of a sophisticated cyber attack, remote controlled from someplace far from Ukraine. It had been less than two years since Vladimir Putin had annexed Crimea and declared it would be, once again become part of Mother Russia. Putin's tanks and troops, who traded in their uniforms for civilian clothing, were sowing chaos in the Russian-speaking southwest of Ukraine and doing what they could to destabilize a new pro-Western government in Kiev, the capital. The Russian cyber attack against Ukrainians, far from the active combat zones, would make sense now in the middle of the, of the holidays. Ukraine was a playground and testing ground for Russia. What happened, Andy Osmot of the Homeland Security often told his staff, was a prelude to what might well happen in the United States. It was the spies and particularly saboteurs who kept him up at night. And the saboteurs who hit Ukraine's power grid in 2015 were not amateurs. All the advantages go to the attacker, Osmond warned. Putin appeared to be making that point in Ukraine. China is another area that we are concerned about. Their cutting-edge technology development is central to China's economic and security goals. In 2012, a joint security advisory was issued to, affect, to affected organizations and stakeholders. The rest of us got a glimpse in January of this year. It came out of uh, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Agency and the FBI. It provided response, incident response and remediation support to a number of victims of this activity. The U.S. has attributed the, this activity to Chinese state-sponsored actors. Government, the government assesses that these actors were specifically targeting U.S. pipeline infrastructure for the purpose of holding U.S. pipeline infrastructure at risk. Also in July of this year, uh, they released the, uh, an assessment to provide information on the Chinese Advanced Persistent Threat Group, known in, uh, in open source reporting as APT40, which is located in, I'm going to mispronounce this, Haku, Hanan Province in the People's Republic of China. Another threat actor is Iran. Iran's cyberspace program objectives con consisting of asymmetric strategy, technological capabilities, and internal control 
by creating an effective, comprehensive, and advanced technological protective system. Iran is very interested in this because they know basically they cannot stand up to a, an actual true Western military in a force-on-force -force, uh, fight. Throw cyber in there and things just got much more even. Syria is also involved in this. Um, they have worked on this and, uh, and are very good at mostly internal but also external. Uh, they, engaged in is they engaged Israel in cyberspace during Operation Pillar of Defense, striking thousands of Israeli systems. Now, a more recent avenue of cyber threats that we have seen comes from the uh, social media portions of cyber. ISIS is probably one of the best at this, and they have used this repeatedly to um, recruit and interfere with what's going on. And they use Twitter a lot, too. Um, there was one point at which uh, Janad Hassan at Al-Akbar sent a tweet out to tell Delta Airlines that they have a soldier on board flight blah 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 with a bomb and is waiting for instructions to destroy the flight. May or may not be true. What do you do? <laughs> you, you don't have, well, let's see, let, let's take a chance. <laughs> now, as we look for solutions to problems that have long plagued cyberspace, what has not changed in, is our fundamental premise that cybersecurity is a shared responsibility between government and the private sector with the onus for protecting computer systems falling on the owners and operators of these systems. A, since, uh, okay, we came up with this uh, Presidential Directive 63, which helped organize all of this. It has had stayed pretty stable between four administrations. Um, Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden, without a lot of change in the way it's going. The continuity of this indicates somewhat of how seriously this must be taken. Because across four administrations, the Republicans and the Democrats haven't fought over this. So it's important. Any scenario between adversaries is balanced between offense and defense. When the offense has the advantage because of some combination of technological superiority of cost, military theorists write, there will be conflict. The offensive strategy in cyberspace is so slowly shifting as the defense closes the gap by taking advantage of new technologies, becomes better organized, and begins to understand the value of what is at stake. Accelerating that shift is one of the central requirements for achieving something more like peace and less like war in cyberspace. Cyber warfare has become both more difficult and costlier to carry out. Cybercrime, on the other hand, has not. One of the things we have to do is make cybercrime and cyber warfare and all the other parts in cyber more costly. The cost of doing business in cyber must go up for the, for the criminals. And we can do that with the right package of, of incentives and continue to move forward. 
Today at IWP, we are marrying the traditional with the modern. While teaching our students the, the basis of national security and international relations, we included the fifth dimension of cyber. Our students understand the computer age and the concept of cyber and are knowledgeable about the threats that cyber presents as well as the bright future it holds. As, I, as Albert Einstein pointed out, knowledge is not understanding. The Cyber Intelligence Initiative brings that understanding to our students. I thank you for your time and if time permits, Frank, <laughs> any questions? Yes, ma'am. One of the, dis one of the uh, packages, the disincentives that we have to bring uh, to, to the cyber realm is immediate uh, attribution. That's one of the things we do not have now. Um, back during uh, the early part of the, of the Trump administration, his uh, national security advisor, General McMaster, was it McMaster? No, General Mattis, um, responded to the president, if we're hit by a cyber attack, first thing we're going to do is nuke them. <laughs> Remember, Mattis was also called Mad Dog. <laughs> this is not something that we can actually do, and one of the problems is, one of the reasons we can't actively go out all the time is attribution, because in cyber attacks, they can move this uh, trail all over, and you really don't know. You, you, we may know it was Russia, but we can never prove it to the world. So one of the incentives we have to do is be able to turn that around and say, we just got hit, we know it was you, and we're coming after you. Another one is to fire bolts through cyber to go after the equipment that they're using to take, take it down. Uh, one of the things we have done, if you remember the Colonial Pipeline, um, $5 million in Bitcoin was paid. Bitcoin, if any of you involved in this, has been told it is secure. Nobody can follow it. Nobody knows where it is. Well, the FBI followed it and got that, most of that $5 million back. So it was, uh, that's a disincentive because now as a ransomware company, uh, you've lost your infrastructure and you've lost your, your money. Yes, sir. That is, that's absolutely correct. And uh, uh, one of the things we do want to uh, emphasize is that in the early part, ages of cyber, uh, our biggest enemy was uh, the 12-year-old in his mother's basement with a computer who could break through and, and get to some of these aspects. It's gotten harder. Uh, most of the major cyber attacks, like the Colonial Pipeline, like solar winds, need to be carried out with uh, knowledge and capabilities that basically only come uh, on a national level. The, the example I'm thinking of is the Swedish guys behind the Pirate Bay. They actually discovered a BGP routing vulnerability. Yeah. And it rerouted basically all traffic directly toward North Korea and wiped out North Korea's internet policy. Yep, that, and that's. Well, good on them. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and that's true. Um, where we worry about more in the, uh, the realm of uh, the, uh, call them an amateur or non-government, 
is, is more tax on the uh, commercial aspect of it. Uh, we have done a lot of different things, and, um, and we talked about attribution, and one of the things we, we, we if you all remember a couple years ago, the Iran shot down an American drone in international waters. There was a, um, an attempt to say, we have to go after Iran and attack them kinetically. President Trump said no, no American was killed. After he was calmed down, he said that. <laughs> and he, so what they used, and we talked about Olympic Games, one aspect of Olympic Games was we turned around and we attacked Iran's uh, air defense uh, system, shut it down completely. Good thing, bad thing, I don't know. Uh, it, we scared the hell out of them because they had no idea what might have been coming at them because everything was shut down. The bad thing is they now know we can do that. <laughs> yes, sir. What, you, there's a great, great tour, quick and dirty tour de force of a lot of aspects. But one thing that you uh, only maybe tangentially touched on at most was the uh, aspect of cyber war as a cyber theft of intellectual property as an aspect of cyber war. Yeah. And, the, and particularly with regard to PRC's doctrine of unrestricted warfare, and the theft of at least $100 billion worth of intellectual property a year for seven, probably 17 or more years, yeah. uh, maybe going back much further than that. Uh, wouldn't that be, a, that's, that's certainly an important part of uh, Cyber War One that we've been in for some time. And that's true, and I also mentioned, if you recall, and this is the problem with that, is the theft of intellectual property. Um, when does it rise from the level of cyber crime to cyber war? Where's the line? Well, a lot of technology has military and Yes. And and that's true, and that's where we are today is trying to figure this out. Is you know if they're they're stealing our drone technology. If they're stealing some of the other uh, intellectual properties that have a national security uh, contingent to it, who did it? Now we have to go back to attribution. How was it a crime? Is there anything we can do about it? And what response should we take? Where we are right now is we're not entirely sure what the response needs to be, how to make that response. And that's where we're, we're hurting. Yes, ma'am. So we know that cyber is usually attacked on two levels. The software level, there's seven layers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can hear her, that's fine. <laughs> so cyber is attacked on two levels, the software level. So it's the software itself and then the hardware. Mm -hmm. So the hardware takes up the first two levels and then the software takes up two to seven yeah. in, in the stack. So my question is, I know that there's lot of software applications that address the software layer, but there's very few, as a matter of fact, there's only one that I know of that actually addresses the hardware layer where the attacks actually start. And that's because they have asset visibility in the hardware layer. Mm -hmm. They pulse the software coming in by electrical impulses to make sure that the fingerprint of the electrical impulse coming in is natural as opposed to unnatural. So, you know, it would appear that we need more uh, experience working with the hardware layer yeah. more than the software layer. And I don't know if you get 
It, 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 well, let me address it. <laughs> I was going to bring some slides, and I, I, did, I figured I had enough to say. You don't need to see slides. One of them is a cartoon that we had uh, the IT magazines put out years ago, and it was a fighting ring. And the referee was up there pointing out, and in this corner, we have uh, all the antivirus, anti-malware, all the equipment that you're talking about that are in the boot section of the computer to stop that coming in. And in this corner, we have Dave. <laughs> and Dave was, was just listed as uh, an unaware user. There was an attack in the Pentagon several years ago um, that um, luckily only hit the unclassified systems. But the apocryphal story of that is that somebody found a thumb drive in the, in the parking lot of the Pentagon, brought it into his office and plugged it in. That virus went immediately. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and these are the things we. It's unfortunately you learn from experience, and sometimes it's bad experience. Yes. Yeah, you have to know, and, and unfortunately, the better we get at doing that, the better they get at hiding it. Some of these worms can go in, and we'll talk about the, like the stuck nets that we, we hit Iran with. It didn't go in and boom, fire off all the, the centrifuges. It could have sat there for six months, undetected, and then spread out. No, it's, it's an important point, and this is something we're constantly fighting. Um, and from a government standpoint, or from, and I'm about to get the hook, <laughs> and, and from a civilian standpoint, most of this is, comes down to economics. And that's all I can say about that. One last question. Again, I'm going to go with an unpopular person here. One last question. Oh, now I get to pick? <laughs> Yes, sir. <laughs> so, so this is a very complex issue, and thank you for your comments and perspectives on this. I have heard that the 5G network, the technology for 5G, is mostly controlled by China. And as we move from a civilian level to smart homes, this would give the Chinese a direct visibility into every conversation in every household. Is that a realistic threat? It's a, it, it's a threat. How realistic and how all-encompassing it can be. It's like going back to the, uh, the threat. The NSA is listening in on everybody's phone conversations. Okay. If you ever <laughs> worked in the intelligence community or, or knew anything about NSA, no, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have, they don't have the, the capability, they don't have the number of people, uh, and they're just listening for uh, uh, keywords in, in certain th things. 5G is, is an important step forward. Um, and yes, we have, and we've, we see this now with the supply chain problem, we have outsourced too much to China. Um, and we do need to do that. Right now, anybody go out there and buy a new, a new even a used car? You want to know what the prices have happened? Why? Because all the chips, the computer chips, come from China 
and they're not coming in right now. So yeah, we as a nation need to address that and maybe take a look at building back up uh, our technology industry, manufacturing. Thank you very much.